This weekend, we're continuing our month-long focus on God's incredible worldwide mission. And today, as a part of that, we're going to consider a passage from the Old Testament. It's found in Psalm 126. Psalm 126 records the celebration and commemoration of God's deliverance of the people of Israel, their deliverance from captivity. And as you know, the Psalms are songs. They were set to music and sung by the people of God. And this song is for you if you are a follower of Jesus. And I say that because if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been set free from captivity and oppression, the most suffocating and dehumanizing captivity and oppression possible, the captivity and oppression of sin. So before we unpack what this psalm has to say about world mission, let me suggest that if you have lost your song, if you have lost your sense of celebration, if you're struggling to worship with enthusiasm and passion, it's likely that you have forgotten where you were when Jesus rescued you. It's likely that you have forgotten where you might be if Jesus hadn't rescued you. So I want to offer this as an extra. It has nothing to do with the rest of our message. The key to enduring celebration isn't improved music, it's improved memory. When we remember where we were and what that was like, then we never lose our celebration and our song. Now having said that, let me get to the main point. Have you noticed that whenever we're celebrating our deliverance from captivity, the Holy Spirit is always present in the midst of our celebration to remind us about those who are still in captivity, to remind us that there are people who haven't yet joined the celebration because they haven't yet come to know Jesus. And the Holy Spirit reminds us that God wants to deliver them just as he delivered you and me, and he wants us to be a part of that process. But the text that we're going to look at today reminds us that being a part of that process can be painful initially. I want to read from Psalm 126, the fifth and sixth verses. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. I've entitled our study this weekend, The Prelude to Joy. Please join your hearts with me as I lead us in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, there are countless men and women in this world that don't yet know of Jesus. They're living in darkness. Their lives are devoid of eternal meaning. 
They are where we once were, and we can still remember what that was like. So, Father, we want to be vitally engaged in what you're up to in the world. We want to be a part of the greatest enterprise in human history, the building of the kingdom of God. And along those lines, Father, we pray that in these coming moments you would speak to us from this ancient psalm, that you would show us the way, that you would show us some of the challenges and show us the victories that lie on the other side of those challenges. And as we do this together, Father, I pray that your Spirit would anoint me for teaching and that your Spirit would anoint each of us for understanding and application. And we pray this for the sake of a broken world that needs us to be faithful to our commission. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together today, may the Lord be with you. The Bible is chocked full of passages that are frequently quoted, sometimes even set to music, but rarely understood. This text is one example. I sang this psalm set to music as a child. I sang it many times growing up in the church, but I had no idea what it meant because it sounds strange to our contemporary Western ears. Why would a farmer weep while he or she was planting unless they had a severe case of allergies and had run out of Claritin? Why would a farmer weep? My first pastorate of seven years was in the little community of Northeast PA where most of my congregants were farmers who grew grapes. And I went out occasionally with them as they planted and I never saw a one of them weep while they were planting. So to understand this text and its implications for God's worldwide rescue efforts, you and I are going to need to plant ourselves in an agricultural context much like that of the psalmist. And there are settings like that still in our world today, and one of them is the Sahil of West Africa. It's a 4,000-mile stretch of savanna that lies directly below the Sahara Desert. And in the Sahil, Eight months of the year see no rainfall whatsoever. Eight months are bone dry. The only rain falls from May to August. So if you don't grow crops between May and August, you don't have anything to eat. And the sad reality is even when you do grow crops, you're likely going to have very little to eat. In the Sahil, October and November are good times. The storerooms are filled with grain from the harvest. So the people sing and they dance and they eat two meals a day. And those meals are heavy and they lie heavy on their stomachs and they sleep well. But in December, as the supplies are beginning to diminish... Many people 
skip a meal. By January, everyone skips a meal and only eats once a day. By February, the size of that lone meal begins to shrink, and then it shrinks again in March. Hunger stalks the land. Children succumb to sickness. In April, the nights are filled with the anguish cry of hungry infants, and their parents listen helplessly. And it's about that time that inevitably something happens in every village, in virtually every home, that every parent dreads. A young child will suddenly burst into the family hut with an announcement, Father, Father, we've got food. I was just out in the goat hut and I saw a leather pouch hanging on the wall and I looked inside of it and it's filled with grain we can eat tonight. And the anguish that follows that announcement defies words. And it falls to the father to break the pained silence. He makes an announcement that quite literally hurts him more than it hurts his children because he knows his children will never, never understand. We can't eat that grain, he says, feeling the weight, the awful weight of each word. We can't eat that grain. That is next year's seed grain. It is the only thing that stands between us and starvation and death. And that's why when the rains finally arrive in the Sahel, just as in ancient Israel, as the fathers go out to throw those valuable seeds upon the hard ground, they sow in tears. Their hearts are breaking. They know that in the sight of their children, they are literally taking the bread from their mouths. And the children don't understand. It seems like a betrayal. You notice the text also says the sowers go out. In the Sahil and in ancient Israel, the fields often lie outside the village. That's why they go out to sow. And outside the village, there's no security. And the farmers know that when they go out to sow, there's a very real possibility that marauding bands of thieves will attack them because the thieves value the grain and they don't leave behind any witnesses. So they don't know if they're going to return home. And they know that what lies ahead of them is difficult, that planting in that hardened, sun-hardened ground is not a task for the weak of heart. So they sow in tears, literally. But they sow in tears because they understand that the pain of sowing gives way to the joy of harvest. The pain of sowing is the prelude to joy. 
and their tears and those of their children and their wives are not permanent. Those tears have an expiration date. The harvest will wipe them away. Now, I'm sure you've noticed God often uses agricultural imagery when he's talking about his worldwide mission. And so Psalm 126 has something to say to us who would be engaged in that. It reminds us that God's desired harvest requires believers who are willing to sow in tears. To put that differently, God's people must be willing to release things of value in order that things far more valuable might unfold. We must be willing to release our seeds as the prelude to harvest. But our faith in God will be challenged when we set out to do so. Because have you noticed we have picked up some unfortunate family traits from Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve. Things like pride, insecurity, love of possessions, fear of loss, and the love of control. So as a result of those, releasing things of value doesn't come to us easily. It feels like loss. A planted seed initially disappears. There's no immediate evidence of a gain or of a harvest. And when some evidence does begin to break through the ground, it's small and insignificant and very fragile. And those same dynamics are repeated when we release our resources, our seeds, to God's mission. It can initially feel like a loss of financial security, a loss of family, a loss of freedom, a loss of reputation, a loss of respect, a loss of status, a loss of joy, or a loss of effectiveness, to name just a few. And there's a second reason why we struggle to release our resources. Sowing is an act of faith, and if you notice, we tend to walk by sight. We prefer the seed in our hand to the harvest that we cannot see. We can see the seed. We can feel the seed. We can taste the seed. But we can't see the harvest. We can't feel the harvest. We can't taste the harvest. And so we struggle. And there's a third reason we struggle. Harvests require patience, and we are incredibly impatient creatures. The farmers of the Sahil, like those of ancient Israel, have to wait. And waiting when your family is hungry and your children are crying seems like an eternity. The tears of sowing quickly give way to the tears of waiting. But the psalm reminds us the tears aren't necessarily bad. They often get a bad reputation, but it's undeserved. The famous American preacher Henry Ward Beecher suggested tears are often the telescope by which men see far into heaven. Tears help our focus. They give us clarity. 
And they help us to see what really matters to God, which is to say they help us to see what really matters, what really matters now and what will really matter in eternity. And when you begin to see what really matters, you're on the path to joy. That's why tears are the prelude to joy. Every one of you, I believe, wants to make a positive difference in this world for the glory of God. You want to have impact. And the good news is every one of you can have more impact on this world than you would imagine, providing you're willing to release some things that you value and providing that you're willing to sow in tears. Now, so that we don't get stuck in theory, let me share some examples from reality. A.B. Simpson, who founded this missionary movement that we're a part of, released most everything he had in order to see a harvest. He was pastoring a fashionable Presbyterian church in New York City. He had what in that day was the equivalent of a six-figure salary. He appeared to be set for life, and he walked away from all of it so that he could have a greater impact upon lost people around the world. And as he did, he quickly discovered that sowing in tears isn't always met with applause. Simpson's wife suggested that he was committing financial suicide and putting his children at risk. His congregants said that his decision was nonsense and seriously wondered if he had had a mental breakdown and encouraged him to seek counseling. And you can be sure that the devil was there every day to tell him that he was a fool. But because he sowed in tears, before he died, he saw the beginnings of what was called the greatest missionary movement of the 20th century, the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And we're off to a good start in the 21st century. He was able to see millions of people come into God's kingdom. And that has continued. Today, over six million people around the world will worship Christ in Alliance churches because A.B. Simpson sowed in tears and released what was in his hand. The early Alliance missionaries that they sent out, much like we're sending out they sowed in tears. Their families who sent them and released them sowed in tears. In one African nation in West Africa, our initial missionary efforts produced more deaths to disease than converts to Jesus. In one nation, out of the first six missionaries who went, five died of tropical diseases and one came home discouraged, fearful of death and not one convert. But today, there are more followers of Jesus in that African nation than there are Alliance men and women in the United States of America. During the icy grip of the Great Depression, my dad lived through the Great Depression. It marked him for life. He had a hard time throwing away anything. He used things till they wore out, and then he kept using them. 
He told me he often wondered if he would eat, and it wasn't unusual that they would go days without eating. But during the Great Depression, Alliance men and women who were struggling to survive gave sacrificially to missions at record levels that have never yet been duplicated. The, rec the levels at which we give today aren't anywhere near the levels at which Alliance people gave during the Great Depression. And you have to know that given the condition in the country and the challenges most Americans faced, every one of those offerings must have felt like loss. And I'm sure some of those folks sowed in tears when they didn't have money to put in the offering plate. They would take off their wedding rings and rings that were family heirlooms and put them in the offering plate, sowing in tears. But because of it, there was a great, great harvest. I could go on and on and on and on and on with examples, but you know, it should come as no surprise, the best example of all, guy named Jesus. You've heard of him? The shortest verse of the Bible is what? Jesus wept. And it reminds us that Jesus sowed in tears so that he could reap in joy. When he said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it will exist alone, he was talking about himself. If I'm not willing to die, he was saying, there'll be no church. There'll be no kingdom of God. There'll be no people celebrating their deliverance from captivity. I'll be alone. In Hebrews, it said it was because of the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. We could paraphrase it in the language of Psalm 126. It was because of the harvest that was set before him that he was willing to sow his own life in tears. The joy set before him. And do you realize the joy that Jesus anticipated was the joy of saving you and me? Saving us gave Jesus such great joy that he was willing to sow his life in tears. And if you've read your Bible, you know that we are called to be like who? We're called to be like Jesus. So following Jesus in mission will increase our tears before it increases our joy. If all the joy came up front, I'm persuaded far more believers would be far more involved in what God is doing in the world. But you see, it's the sowing in tears that comes first. It's the reaping in joy that comes later. And why do I say following Jesus in mission will increase your tears? Well, it's because you'll begin to share God's sorrow over broken humanity. When you listen to the evening news or the morning news, you'll not only be concerned about the unfolding tragedies in this world, but you'll look at them through God's eyes, and you'll feel the heartbeat of God and you'll feel the broken 
heart of God. And most of us spend our lives guarding our hearts from being broken. We don't readily open them up so they can be broken by God with the things that break his heart. Your heart will break over the things that break the heart of God. That's why the founder of our movement, who I referred to earlier, A.B. Simpson, was often found by his colleagues in his study with his arms around a globe of the world just weeping uncontrollably for the people who don't know Jesus. He sowed in tears, but it was the prelude to joy. Jesus sowed in tears, but it was the prelude to joy. Early Alliance people sowed in tears, but it was the prelude to joy. Psalm 126 is a song of celebration. And it teaches us that if we're going to really enjoy that celebration, if we're going to enter in enthusiastically, if we're going to hear the music of it, if we're going to dance the dance of it, we've, going, we've got to be willing to sow in tears. Sow in tears. Because sowing in tears is the prelude to joy. I hear people compromising the gospel of Christ to win a crowd by telling their audience that Jesus came so that those who have could have even more. That Jesus came so that you could have a bigger house and a newer car and more money in the bank and on and on and on. And there's always an audience for that kind of unbiblical message. But the irony is those who see Jesus as a way to get more forfeit joy because they never sow. While those who are willing to sow in tears experience a harvest of joy. Every one of us has to make a decision. We got to follow the world script or are we going to follow the course that Jesus recommended for us? I want to invite you to just take a couple moments and you just talk to the Lord quietly and ask this simple question if you dare. <laughs> Lord, is there something you want me to sow? Something you want me to release? It can be financial, it could be your children, it could be your plans, it could be your position. Lord, is there something you want me to sow, even though I'll probably cry as I do? And if so, show me that. And then help me in faith to sow it. Father, we thank you for your promises, none of which has ever been broken. This one has not been broken. 
wherever your people are willing to sow in tears, they always reap in joy. If not in this life, then in the life to come. And that one has no end. So that's an awesome return. Father, speak to each one of us about what it is you want us to sow. And help us to plunge through our tears and trust you for the harvest. Because a lot of folks' eternity is riding on our response to this truth. So help us to respond with the love of Christ and the passion of our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.